You're listening to Byzantine Gospel Reflections, a podcast made possible through the work of the Institute of Catholic Culture in collaboration with the Melkite Eparchy of Newton. I'm Father Hezekiah Carnazzo, founder and director of the Institute and host for this program. In this podcast, we'll explore the historical and literary context, themes, and significance of the readings for the coming Sunday. This podcast was originally recorded as a video. For the full viewing experience, please visit us at instituteofcatholicculture.org. Blessed is our God at all times, both now and ever, and unto ages of ages. Amen. Heavenly King, Consoler, Spirit of Truth, present in all places and filling all things, the treasury of blessings and the giver of life, come and dwell within us. Cleanse us of all stain and save our souls, O good one. Welcome back to our Byzantine lectionary reflection, which we will be producing each week. I want to thank all those that reached out to us over the past few weeks to say thank you for this resource. God willing, we'll be able to continue these reflections each week as really a Bible study, which is the purpose of our sessions here is to prepare for what we are to receive on Sunday by gaining the historical and literary context of the biblical passages which are given so, so as to be able to profit more from those texts when they're proclaimed in the context of the church in our liturgy, but also to open ourselves up to the insights of, our, of those that are going to be preaching in our churches the coming Sunday so that they're able to build on this historical context in which uh, the, the texts are given to us. So let's jump right in here to Matthew chapter 8, uh, verse 5. We're looking at Matthew chapter 8, verse 5, and we're really continuing on aren't we, Father, a theme that we've been doing, which is this, these, these texts from the Gospel of Matthew in a kind of the context of the Mount of Beatitudes. We've been up there, the edge of the, the Sea of Galilee, Jesus looking, and he's been teaching us. And here we continue the text here in chapter 8, verse 5. Matthew chapter 8, verse 5. And, and again, I want to remind you to get out your Bible. We're not going to be doing these, these, uh, these studies without our Bibles in front of us. So Matthew chapter 8, verse 5. At that time, when Jesus entered Capernaum, there came to him a centurion who begged him, saying, Lord, my servant is lying sick in the house, paralyzed and is grievously afflicted. Jesus said to him, I will come and cure him. But in answer, the centurion said, Lord, I am not worthy that you should come under my roof, but only say the word and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man subject to authority and have soldiers subject to me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to the another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. And when Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who were following him, Amen, I say to you, I have not found such great faith in Israel. And I tell you that many will come from the east and from the west and will feast with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the children of the kingdom will be put out into the darkness outside, and there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then Jesus said to the centurion, Go your way, as you have believed, so it will be done to you. And the servant was healed at that hour. You know, Father Sebastian, we've heard this story, as with all of the stories of Jesus in the Gospels, we've heard this story year after year in our, in our lectionary cycle, but rarely do we just stop and try to gain the literary context or the context within the gospel account of what's going on, and then to ask important questions about that. So let's, let's just do that. I'm going to ask you to kind of set the stage for us. Where is Jesus teaching? 
why is it that a, a centurion is part of the story? In other words, kind of what's that, what's that context in which we're standing? So as you mentioned, we're still in this, in this context in which Jesus has just called his disciples back in chapter four. We saw that a few Sundays ago. And then he went up the mountain, which is, you mentioned, and, and you and I remember so well, is right there. He, he went right up the mountain from that little cove where he called them. And if up on the mountain there, he gave them the Sermon on the Mount, uh, the Beatitudes and all the other parts of it that we know. And part of that sermon, a little clip from that sermon, was what we read last Sunday in this choosing between the ways of the world and the ways of God, right? And so we can see in the context there, it's so beautiful. You can see he's, he's talking not to just crowds, but to these guys that he just called from their boats, from their nets, and said, guys, you got to make a decision. What are you going to do? And what he was not asking them to do, as we talked about last time, was to just abandon everything and run off into the hills, you know, but, but rather to change the life in which they were living right then, reorder things, so that in the life with their boats, with their nets, with their families, everything, everything was now directed to the ministry of Jesus. When he was done with that Sermon on the Mount, we hear that he went down into the nearby town, Capernaum, right? Capernaum, the, the city where Peter and Andrew were living. And that's recorded in the verses just above this reading in chapter 8. And that's recorded in the first verse here, verse 5. He entered Capernaum. This brings us into that context where he's going to be living there in that house, in Peter's house. There's Peter. There's the, the family is there. The, the, the rest of the fishermen and their, and their houses and everything. It's right there on the shore. And in fact, the next morning, it says that, that in verse 23, this is after our reading for today, but in verse 23, they went out and he got into a boat. He got into the boat, Peter's boat, and they went out and they, you know, went out into the sea and there was some problems there. But that's the original context of the, of the story. You know, it's probably, it's for us, for you and I, for, to be able to envision where this is and what's going on is maybe easy. But so how important it is, because it, it just, it kind of like makes us stand there and helps us allow Jesus to speak to us, to be able to see the centurion come to him and kind of just be present there and to be able to receive this gospel more intimately. As you see on, on your screen now, that beautiful vision from the Mount of Beatitudes over the Sea of Galilee. And it's really how, how important it is to get this context of what they're looking at and the ways of the world versus the ways of God. And then Jesus so beautifully just takes his friends and they go back to their, their, their village which is literally at the foot of this mountain. But when we're talking about the mountain, we're not talking about these high peaks way off in the distance. It's really a hill, isn't it, that rises just above the Sea of Galilee. It's about a maybe a 20, 25-minute walk. I remember you and uh, Huri Lila made that, that hike one, one day when we were on the Sea of Galilee. Just about a 25-minute walk down the hill. They're going back down. They probably walked along the seashore and washed off the stickers from their clothes and things because those, those burrs and stickers get in there. And they just walked up to the, there to Capernaum. Um, and it's there in Capernaum that a centurion comes to him. So I'm going to ask you, why is a centurion all of a sudden show up in the gospel account? Why is there a centurion in Galilee? 
Um, why would they be interested? Why would the Romans be interested at all in this? What seems to be just a broken down old village as you go to it today, there's nothing left really, but some, some old stem walls and things like that. But it doesn't look like much up in the far reaches of, of the Holy Land, Promised Land, Galilee, Palestine. Why is it there that there is a centurion, a, a Roman soldier? Who is he? What is a centurion? Why does he end up in the gospel account? So the centurion is a soldier, but he's not just any you know, lowly soldier. He's, he's in charge of a hundred guys. And it's part of the organization of the Roman army. But what are we talking about the Roman army for? That's what we're getting at, right? I mean, what are the Romans doing there? And why are they in that spot there? Well, because th this region was very important to control. This is the, where all the trade routes went from north all the way to the south, down to Egypt. From Egypt through the whole Fertile Crescent, Palestine, that region was critical to control. It was the freeway through which all the marketeers traveled. And so it was a very important area to control. The Romans this controlled this area. This is the really the edge of the Roman Empire is right here, just a little bit further beyond the Jordan River out there in the wilderness is the far eastern edge of the empire. Beyond that was, was outside. And so the Romans controlled this area is very important especially because we're talking about the borderland. <clears throat> and then they were also there in, in Capernaum. This was a very important city. This was the fishing village, the, the major fishing city there on the northern shore. Lots of fish there. This is the area where this whole northern shore where all of the, the springs, the seven springs come in and feed the, the Jordan or the, feed the Sea of Galilee with water. And so the fish congregate in the northern area. And, and so this is, this is what's going on there. Is this also, uh, is, is, isn't, um, is it Matthew's tax, tax offices right there uh, in the Gospel of yeah, Mark? That's right. I remember when we were there together, I remember the, the, um, uh, the tour guide showing us, you know, the, the area where that tax booth would have been. Is the, this is the area where the, the roads actually pass around the Sea of Galilee, heading up to the north. If you were coming from way up north, you'd come right through this area and go down south to head down into Jerusalem or down into Egypt eventually. So this is a, a really, uh, if you're living in, in California, this is, this is the 101 or the I-5. This is well, you know, we're going to pull this, we're going to pull the map up on our screen now. You can see this trade route that goes, that goes right there along the sea, the northern, what, northwestern side of the Sea of Galilee. Yeah. Um, so... Well, this is, this is fascinating. The, the basic thrust of the, of the gospel account is obvious. It's a man here has great faith, and, and Jesus makes a point of it. But I think there's, there's something maybe deeper that we can grab hold of, and that is the question, why compare this man to a man of Israel? So why is it that the centurion is compared to the people of God, really? And then why also mention Abraham and this idea of east and west and people being gathered from, from everywhere? As you mentioned, this is the Gospel of Matthew. So Matthew's Gospel is the earliest Gospel, and it is very Jewish, very Palestinian Christian. It, you've got to go back to that early church context to grasp what's going on in Matthew's Gospel. In, in the Gospel here, we're seeing something that we'll find also in Acts of the Apostles because of the same reader, talking about the same period. Matthew is emphasizing things which Jesus did to not only fulfill the law of the Old Testament, that's for that Jewish Christian audience, but also where Jesus shows that the, the 
message that Moses had brought, the, the gift of the Old Testament, was intended eventually to bring in the Gentiles into the people of God. And so this is one of those early tensions we find in the church there where the Jewish Christians are struggling with the, this influx of Gentile Christians coming in. What do we do with them? Do they need to be circumcised? Do they need to be kosher? Things like that. And so a centurion is a great example of, of, a, uh, of the Gentile of Gentiles, right? This is what Luke does in Acts 10 when we hear about the conversion of Cornelius, a centurion. And Luke picks that a story about a centurion to emphasize, to show us that the Gentiles will come into the people of Abraham. They will come into the kingdom of God, but they won't be doing it by circumcision and kosher laws. They're going to be doing it through the faith of Abraham. Mm -hmm. You know, it seems, it seems uh, also fascinating to think about Abraham called from apparently outside of the, the place of the promised land. And now he's going to be coming. And I remember in the story of Abraham, God says to him, look to the north, to the south, to the east, and to the west. And almost this idea of, of this, uh, this evangelical vision of where the, how the kingdom of God is going to spread. You know, Father, there's another a context I was considering, and, and that is very much related here, and that is liturgical context. It was why these, are, these kind of gaining these historical contexts are going to open up for us the, an application, a proper application of the text for us today. But that is the liturgical context. You know, it, we, we are now on the fourth Sunday of Pentecost. We cannot lose contact with that. If, you know, I think it's, it's, it's good we just kind of like bear hug, hold on to the Feast of Pentecost. The further we get from it, time-wise, the easier it is to let it go and forget our anchor. But we cannot forget that anchor. Every single Sunday, we see the fourth Sunday, the, the, the fifth Sunday, the tenth Sunday, and so forth. The further we go, it's, it's a temptation to let go, but we cannot. The church is anchoring us to this great feast, which gives us the proper vision for what we're doing today. Jesus has ascended into heaven. And he says to us at the in the end of the gospel of Matthew, I remain with you always. Chapter 28, verse 20. Chapter 8, 28, verse 20. You go ahead and take a look at that. I remain with you always. And we oftentimes allow ourselves to let, that's Jesus talk, you know. He says he's going to remain with us always, but he doesn't really, but that's okay because he's God. So he doesn't really have to tell us the truth, okay? He can kind of make it up and it's okay. But, uh, but, but obviously that's not the case. Jesus is, uh, is the truth. Um, and he does remain with us always. It's fascinating that he gives us this beautiful teaching right as he's about to ascend into heaven. The question is, what does he mean by that? Obviously, he, he, he is going to remain with us always. He's going to remain with us always in the gift of his all Holy Spirit in our life, that he is going to be present, that shining light of Pentecost, if you will. He's going to be pre present with us, but in a new way, and not somehow a lesser way, but in a new way, just as powerful or more powerful than he was as he walked among us in the flesh because he's going to remain with us always in our heart. And now he's going to walk in the flesh in our lives, in us. If, and I put a big old if there, if we do, if we do what the centurion has done, I, I just take a look back at that text. Only say the word, only say the word 
and my servant will be healed. It's the power of Jesus' word that Jesus becomes present among us. How important that is now in the, in the context of the season in which we're living, this post-Pentecost or the Pentecost season, if I can stretch it out, if you will, this, this time in which the, the Feast of Pentecost is shining a light upon the church and the reality of Christ's presence among us. But there's a necessary component here, and is, that is the reception of his word. We're going to see right here in just a moment in the epistle, this connection with slavery and the freedom of the sons of God, that Jesus and our relationship with him will never be something forced upon us. He will not force his presence among us, but he will be present among us if we accept his word. We will find that freedom as we're going to find in the, in the epistle. Um, and, uh, and, um, and, and maybe a further, a further question for us in, a, in this application before we move on uh, to the epistle text. And that is, do we welcome people into our community or are we like the Jews here in the gospel account who say, no, the, the, the community is just for us. Uh, Capernaum is just for us. The friends of, of Jesus are just for us. And I would imagine the apostles struggled with this. In fact, we see it multiple times in the gospel where people, children and others come to him. And the apostles try to push them away. And no, what are you doing talking to the Samaritan woman? You can imagine the reaction of the, the apostles having spent this time, this intimate time with Christ on the mountain. And then they go to their hometown. Uh, and I say it's an intimate time. There were intimate moments on the mountain, but of course, thousands of people flock to him. And finally, they get him back to themselves, back in their hometown. But now the enemy of enemies, the, the, the representative of the oppressor, uh, that have put them into slavery, if you will, comes to him and they must have said, no, this communion with Christ is not for you. But Jesus actually engages them. You know, in the Traparian that we sing this Sunday in the third tone, the last, the last line of it, well, I'm going to share with you the whole, the whole of the text and then let's focus on that last line. Let all in heaven rejoice and all on earth be glad for the Lord has exerted power with his arm. By death, he has trampled upon death and has become the firstborn of the dead. This is the great gospel proclamation, basically, in a nutshell. He has delivered us from the bosom of Hades. In other words, the reality of his resurrection has done something for us. And now we rejoice in this last line. And he has granted to the world great mercy. He has granted to the entire world Huh? Not just the Ukrainians, not just the Ruthenians, not just the Palestinians or Jordanians or, or, or Iraqis, not just, not just for my people, but for the entire world Christ has come. And I just ask our participants, do we believe that? That our church is not only for us, but that our church has a purpose, as the church of the Old Testament had a purpose, which sadly it rejected has a purpose, and that is to bring salvation and this, this uh, proclamation that he has risen from the dead, and he's delivered us from the dead also. It's a big lesson for us during this time of the Apostles' Fast to kind of renew our evangelical vision of our church. So let's leave it at that and move on with this, with this same theme, I think, in the, in the Prochemenon, which we chant in the church 
very quickly. We, we say, sing praise to our God, sing praise, sing praise to our King, sing praise. And then that theme comes right back at us. All you peoples, or maybe the, all you nations, huh? all you peoples, all you nations, clap your hands and rejoice. Shout to God with cries of gladness. Why? Because Christ has established a church. He's made himself present within that church. And now that church has opened its doors wide to everyone to come and participate in the great news that we have escaped death and have come to know the fullness of life. Father, let's, let's jump right into the epistle. We're back in Romans chapter 6, verse 18, chapter 6 of Romans, which is such an important uh, text for us in our, in our liturgical uh, services. This is, the, this is the chapter in which we get our baptismal epistle. Uh, Romans chapter 6, verse 18. Let's look at chapter 6, verse 18. Brethren, I speak in a human way because of the weakness of your flesh. For as you yielded your members as slaves to uncleanness and iniquity, so now yield your members to slaves of justification, so as to be sanctified. You know, I'm just going to stop for a moment because I'm, we have to keep the gospel account and epistle account tied together. And, and certainly that's the slaves of uncleanness and iniquity are those that were formerly outside the people of God, huh? the, the image of the centurion. But now he yields himself to the word of God. For while you were the slaves of sin, you had nothing to do with justification. But what fruit did you gather then of those deeds of which you are now ashamed? For the end of such things is death. But now set free from sin and become slaves to God. You have your fruit resulting in sanctification, and as your end, life everlasting. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is life everlasting in Christ Jesus our Lord. Father, again, what is, what is uh, St. Paul talking about here regarding slaves of God and yet being free from sin? There's, a, there's this interesting, um, as I was reading, it jumped out at me because, because there's this, this idea of being freed and yet we're slaves to God. How can there be freedom in slavery? I know you and I had entered into a discussion about this a couple of years ago with another gentleman who says, no, no, this is terrible to say that we are slaves of God. But here it is right here in St. Paul. How is it possible to be freed? And, and also, you know, what is that greater context? What is that old slavery that St. That Paul's talking about in the context, again, of the early church, uh, when his original, who's receiving this in Rome, the, the Christian community in Rome, what did it mean to them? And then what is that slavery to God, which is, which is freedom? Yeah, well, it's like you said, and this really ties beautifully with the, the, uh, gospel reading right where you have a centurion saying hey i've got servants slaves i i tell one to do one thing he does i say you come over here he comes and, and that's how it is so so uh can you heal my servant right so he, he's a, implying that he and he understands that jesus has servants under him like he does and whatever jesus says those servants do 
like that, right? And so that's what we're talking about here, where there is this slavery to Christ. St. Paul refers over and over to himself as a slave of Jesus. And uh, so the, the original context here in Romans, it, it's again, bringing us back into that early church context. The church in Rome was plagued by the, the Judaizer heresy, as many of the places were in the early church. The, and so Paul has to write this letter to the church in Rome to correct them on this and let them know that, look, you Jewish Christians who are in the church there, you don't, there's no reason to have a Gentile who wants to come to Jesus to enter into the church to have them be circumcised and keep kosher. Those things do not do anything. They didn't save you. They're not going to save the Gentile. What will save you and the Gentile is faith in Christ, as we heard in the uh, also in the gospel. And so what Paul does then in chapter 6 is he shows how is it possible that whether Jew or Gentile, you can be saved in Christ? Well, he says, all of you who have been baptized into Christ have died with him, been buried with him, raised with him in newness of life. All of you, whether Jew or Gentile. And now we know, therefore, he says, that, that we have a bodily resurrection that is coming. As a result, we've been spiritually raised through, the ba through baptism, through the sacraments of initiation, spiritually raised so that we can be bodily raised when Christ comes the second time. And so after finishing that beautiful little baptismal homily, as you mentioned, we, we read that text in our um, baptismal services. He then concludes with an exhortation of how to live our life now. What do we do between the, between the baptismal font, between our spiritual resurrection and our bodily resurrection when Christ returns. What are we going to do in the meantime with what's been given to us? We are spiritually regenerated. We know what is right and what is wrong now. We are no longer to walk in the ways that we did before, but rather to walk in the ways of Christ, to be a slave, a servant of, obedient to the words of God. And so we are to, to do that, walking in the way of Christ following not the yearnings of our body, but the yearnings of the spirit. And it sounds almost like Paul's a dualist here, where he, you know, the, the body is not good, should not be followed, but the, the, the spirit is the one that is to, uh, to be followed. It's that the body is not yet regenerated. The body is in the process of, even now, theosis, sanctification, but that process will not be complete until our bodies are raised from the dead when Christ comes again. And so that's what we're to do between the baptismal font, between our spiritual resurrection and our bodily resurrection, is to be slaves of Christ, walking in accord with the word of God that has been put within us. Of course, the, um, the, uh, that, that slavery to Christ is something that happens through freedom. Huh? It's a free choice of ours. It's not that the Lord is coming as the, as the say, the Roman oppressors were to put into slavery by force, or, uh, or Pharaoh, you know, putting God's people into slavery by force. But it's a, it's a, it's a servitude which we choose to place ourselves at the, at the disposal, if you will, as St. Saint, as, as Saint Peter and the other apostles brought their whole life to the service of Jesus Christ, on their boat, their home, and so forth, to place our life at the service of the work of God and therefore yield our 
bodies, as you were saying, there's a struggle between the spirit. We know what's right, but our body doesn't always follow, which is what St. Paul's saying, right? Don't do that. Yield your members. You who have been reborn in Christ, that beautiful line, that last, that last phrase, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is life everlasting in Christ Jesus. So using that same, the same thing he said at the beginning of this chapter, and I encourage our listeners to go back and read the whole chapter because this is, this is the baptismal chapter. How we've been baptized into Christ, and now our hands, our feet, our eyes, our ears, our whole life is to be put into his service because it's no longer I who live, as St. Paul says, but it is, it is Christ who lives in me. You know, I think we can conclude today by going back uh, to the gospel account and this image of the centurion. The centurion comes and pleads on behalf of his servant. It's his servant who is healed. It's his servant who is sick and in need, unable to walk, if you will, unable to, to hear, to see, whatever the illness is. He's unable to live in Christ. But the centurion comes and intercedes on his behalf and therefore becomes the vehicle, the avenue by which the healing of the servant takes place. I think this, this uh, epistle is given to us about yielding our lives and this gospel given to us about becoming this, this uh, intercessor, if you will, on behalf of others during this time this, of this, this post-Pentecost or that shining light of Pentecost to ask ourselves this fundamental question. Are we willing to become apostles for Christ? Are we willing to become like the centurion, to bring life to those around us? Are we willing to yield our lives? And this is going to happen to us, not simply because it is dictated in our life, because we have been given the gift of being Christians, but because that gift of being a Christian in our baptism has resulted in a choice in our life so fundamentally important for us. It is not enough to simply be baptized. This is the beginning of our restoration to life. It is the beginning, but it is not the end. In between the beginning and the end is a great choice in our life by which I say, yes, Lord, I open myself up to your work. And what began on the day of my baptism is going to become the driving force of my life so that I may become a, a, a conduit, if you will, of God's life to others that are around me. Let's ask ourselves and meditate upon this question and begin to ask again the Lord to work in our life, to open our life up to his work so that we may become a conduit of his grace. To him be glory both now and ever and unto ages of ages. Amen. Thank you for joining us for the Institute of Catholic Culture's Byzantine Gospel Reflections podcast. The Institute of Catholic Culture is an adult catechetical organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. I invite you to explore all we have to offer, including over 900 hours of on-demand catechetical opportunities, and sign up for our upcoming events by visiting instituteofcatholicculture.org.